On the 27th of June, 2011, the London Film School welcomed Barry Vince, editor, for a Q&A following the screening of the Jerzy Smolenski film, Deep End. Thank you for um, coming, and um, we also thank Barry Vince for being with us tonight and um, take your uh, questions and answers. But I'd just like to maybe just explore certain things before we open the to the floor. Um, I, I, I saw the film uh, about a month ago, and there was certain um, uh, uh, aspects of it that I that I found very fresh, especially the use of color uh, and um, the 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 kind of um, um, approach to the the woman character, the um, Jenny the Asha plays. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the the conversation that you had with the directors uh, Skolimowski about the approach to the to the subject matter, which is about growing up and sort of awakening to sexuality. And well, the, there wasn't any conversation with him before the film was shot, because mm-hmm. in fact, uh, it was this is the only feature film where I wasn't on the film from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. I mean, normally, as you know, the practices that I go into the cutting room, the edit suite, first day of shooting, rushes come through on the next day, they're synced up, we look at them, I start cutting the next day. Skolomowski had already shot probably two-thirds of the film in Germany, and he wanted a British editor. Um, His argument was that his English wasn't good enough to be able to judge performance. And so he wanted somebody to make sure that the choice of, the choice of takes, the delivery, uh, the revoicing, of which there was quite a lot, um, was like there was somebody there to make sure that the performances were okay. That was his argument. Um, so uh, he, had, he came over to London having shot in Munich for certainly a couple of weeks. Uh, he came over to London to shoot the London material, most of which was Soho. Uh, so you shot well, on so, location? Uh, yeah, Soho was on location. That was genuine. Uh, the London streets that you saw, the ones the boys cycled on, uh, the approach to the cinema. The cinema scene itself was shot in Germany and the office was in Germany and so on. But the exteriors, which looked like London, were London... Um, the exterior of the baths was London. But the reverse angle onto the park, that was Munich. So they had to match Munich to London. So, uh, so for instance, the, uh, the stuff in the car park when, when Mike punctures the, mm-hmm. the um, tyres of the car, mm-hmm. uh, that was artificial snow because that was shot in, shot in April. May. Uh, they, they were very lucky when they were shooting in Munich because the snow had gone and it demanded snow. I mean, as you see, planted through the film are the dates of the days of the week. So the Friday was the 20th and the Saturday was the 21st of February. So it's supposed to be set in February because the a concept, one of the things that occurred to him to set up the film, Skolomowski's idea with it, 
was the question, what do you do when you lose a diamond in the snow? That, that was, was the, the origin of Well, the, that was the origin. I have to say that the story is actually based on a Turgenev okay. story called First Love. And ironically, John Mulder Brown had just finished a film of First Love, shot in Germany, okay. before he starred in this film. So the film of the original short story had actually been made as a period piece. And Skolomowski had taken the story and then updated it with the idea of what do you lose, uh, what do you, yes, what do you do when you lose a diamond in the snow? And there was also a newspaper clipping about a mysterious death in a swim pool in, in East London. Okay. That came in. So he fitted all the bits together and he and, and Boleslav Sulik produced the script. Um, I didn't meet him, as I say, until he was shooting in London and he wanted a British editor. And he asked the production manager to find one, the British production manager, who asked a friend of mine, of his, who happened to know a cameraman who's a neighbour of mine, who happened to say, well, you should get on to Barry Vince. Nobody knew. So I suddenly got this phone call out of the blue from... Um, uh, from a production manager saying, uh, Mr. Skolomowski would be interested in seeing what you can do. Uh, could he see an example of your work? Uh, he wants to see, you know, you, you know, something that shows that you can edit. So when I heard that, there was this phone call, I, I thought, ah, oh, I know what he wants. He wants something flashy. And I just happened to be working on something of a film I cut uh, a year, year or two before, called Negatives, which had a very flashy ending to it. Lots of, you know, it was silly as a montage sequence I built up at the end. So I thought, that's what he's after. They're, they're after something flash. I mean, I didn't know anything about the film, not at all. This came out of the blue. So I had to have the, because we were working on a documentary with Glenda Jackson about Negatives, I happened to have the end of that film with me, so I left it at the preview theatre that night and thought, well, that's it. We'll see what happens. And the next day, there was a call saying, uh, Mr. Skolomowski's seen um, that film, and he's quite interested. Have you got anything else to show? Now, I didn't know about Skolomowski. I mean, he, he, this was not a name. You know, we all knew about Polanski. But yeah, Skolomowski didn't mean anything. Because um, Skolomowski was the, one of the scriptwriters, or, or the scriptwriter on Knife on the Water. On water. Yes, in, apparently in he was locked up with Polanski in the room, and they were told not to come out till they finished the script. That's his story. Because that Knife was the water. Polanski's first film. Yeah, the Polanski's. Um, yes, that's right. It was his first feature. That's right. Uh, so, I was asked to um, whether I would. Uh, provide him another example of my work and again just by chance I knew that there was a print of the film that I'd just finished a film called Hoffman um, which was sitting in the um, trying, trying to remember well, it was EMI in those days and EMI had offices in Waller Street I just walked in I mean it was, it was ridiculous you couldn't do it today but I walked in and said oh can I I'll just I'm picking up you know, an answer print it was an answer print of Hoffman. I picked up the last reel and dropped it off at the preview theatre. Uh, it was a pretty risky thing to do, just taking it. Anyway, 
So the, I went along on the Saturday, and they said, could you come along on Saturday and meet Mr. Skarnowski? So I said, OK. And he said, uh, or he came up from the rushes, which were screening, uh, and said, I've seen your, both your films. And he said, two totally different styles. And he said, mine's right in the middle. So he said, I think you could work for me. That's okay. Who says I want to do this film? I don't know anything about it. And it means cutting in Germany. And that time I was going from film to film to film in this country. And I thought, well, yeah, you came to Germany and cut this film. I don't know anything about it. We'll see. So he said, will you come to my, my, uh, my apartment on Sunday morning? And I'll tell you something about it. So I said, oh, okay. So we're going out to lunch anyway. So dropped off and called in to see him. And he pitched the story to me. And within two minutes, I knew I had to do it. I just knew. He just said, this story about a 15-year-old boy. He's on his first job. He's in this pool. And he falls in love with this beautiful 20-year-old redhead who's there. And she suggests that they switch. And so he finds himself waiting on the women and so on. And I thought, ah, there's something going on. He didn't go through the whole script, so he said, I knew I was hooked. Did, did he speak to you about why setting it in Britain, in London? Why setting it? It was originally supposed to be uh, an Anglo-German film. The first producer was, was Judd Bernard, and you'll see he's credited. Now, Judd Bernard was actually the producer of Negatives, so I had worked with him, but that wasn't how I got the film. And he also produced Point Blank. So okay. there are. So he was, he was had quite a standing. He was up there with the new filmmakers and so on. Okay, but he fell out with the with the German co-producers, and so the Germans just took it over completely, and he disappeared. So of course the deal was that stuff that could be shot in Germany is the usual co-production stuff a certain amount of input from Germany and a certain amount from the other side. Well, it was set in London, and of course, I mean, this was 1970, so London was still the hot place. It was, it was just the end of swinging London and so on. And it was going to be English language. They had Jane Ash. So, you know, it wasn't a German movie. Um, so that, well, was, no, I, that was why I, it was set in London. I ask, yes. you, the question, I ask you a question because... Mm. Uh, Having seen a lot of films from uh, British films from the seventies, there is a kind of um, this fits very much within the style of that filmmaking in one way. Mm-hmm. Some of the the humor and some of the sexual innuendos, and uh, but it takes the film to a darker place. I think it's probably the director's mm-hmm. intention to take to darker place. And my my question relates to that kind of. Um, for example, the scene with Diana Dawes, it's, a, it's a slightly uncomfortable <laughs> being in this day and age, in, in this period in 2011. But it's cut in a way that it makes the, because it's a rape but to all intents and purposes, makes it very um, hard not to watch because of the kind of the implications for the boy did you have a, a lot of cover, for example, in that scene, and, and did you went for that because it stays mainly on her from 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's very heavily it's loaded towards her. Probably. There, there wasn't much cover on it. Um, probably three or four angles. Mm-hmm. Funnily enough, that was the one scene I was present when they shot. I was actually, for one take, I was actually in that room, which was tiny. And she really beat John up. She grabbed him. She really was going for it, pulling mm-hmm. his hair and so on. I wonder how he stood it. You know. mm-hmm. um, there were th- three, maybe four angles of the scene all the way through. Um, mentioning the shooting, one thing that Skolomowski said to me on that Sunday <laughs> when I decided I had to do it was that he had, he said, an interesting approach to the shooting, which was, he said, some of the shots are, are, on the, uh, are off the tripod. Right? So he said, I've got shots taken off the tripod, particularly wide shots. He said, then take them off the tripod and they're handheld. I thought, oh, shit, you know, this, is, this is going to be a bugger cutting those together. You know. I thought it what, wasn't, why is it that wasn't, in terms of aesthetics? Well, I, no, no, I thought when he talked about... Because we're talking about 35mm cameras. Right, we're not right. talking about... You know, they were only just bringing in the 16mm <laughs> sound cameras that you could handhold. This was 35mm. What, in fact, a lot of it was shot on was unblimped Arriflex, but it was still 35mm Arriflex. And some of the scenes, looking at them now, I realise it's original sound. For instance, the, what we call the pregnant man scene, the one in the corridor. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's original sound. So the camera must have been blimped, and it's handheld. Right. I mean, Charlie Steinberg, who was just a fantastic cameraman. You see. Mm-hmm. So... When he shot in, the, uh, in, in, in that small room, the thing about Charlie was that Charlie is a storyteller, he understands drama. So when he, when, when he was moving the camera, he was moving it with the drama. The camera always finished up exactly where I wanted it to be. Now, when I say where I wanted it to be, you see, I'm an audience figure. I represent all of you when I'm editing. So I'm the person who decides, if I had paid £10 to go and see this movie, what would I want to be seeing now? That's my criterion for it. Not anything about, well, I'm a clever technician. It's a question of, what do I want to see that is going to tell this story in the most effective, dramatic way? Mm-hmm. Now, usually what happens, or on a great deal of conventional shooting, because you get lots of cover, which means that you can pick your way through and you know that this piece is appropriate for this and then the axis changes and so on and so you build it working out from the dramatic structure well Charlie and Yerji between them had got a sense of not only where the camera should be generally which way where was the, the basic direction that scenes should be shot from but also who they should be on and where they should be so that you could do this kind of thing. You could have dialogue scenes where you're doing this, <laughs> like a documentary with, shot with a 16mm camera, doing it with 35 which was <laughs> extraordinary. Um, but you'll see that, for instance, the shot in that, um, in, in that scene with Diana Dawes, when... Uh, it was done especially for that, how beautifully it was, it, it was choreographed when she puts her foot out and kicks mm-hmm. the door closed 
and you kick the door closed and with the movement of a foot the door shuts and you come up just as Mike's hand comes in and opens it again. And I mean that was just like that. So you didn't have to do that in a cut. You you didn't have to say, right, the door closes, come up to Mike and see him do it. That was all done in one. So, so Ari, why centering the scene? Because it's very heavily emphasising her. Yes. Why then her and not the object of... the object, in this case, the boy? Because he was the... He was passive. I mean, his, right. his role in that was to be her sex object. Mm-hmm. Right? So he, he was an uh, inflatable sex doll, if you like. He yeah, might yeah, well have yeah. except he was alive. She could pull his hair and, and feel him strain and so on. And it was her number. I mean, it was an aria. It was, you know, it was, it was just a, a you know, virtuoso piece. If so he was went. he already then editing within the scene? Uh, yes, Moschi. I mean, if you, if you see, a great, a great deal of it was done where either he's on a two-shot or he'll, he'll pan down and then back. And the great thing with that is that he always panned off when you weren't on an essential line of dialogue and then came back and it was another essential line of dialogue. Mm-hmm. So he, he had a sense for what we want to see in sync and what you could overlay, if you like, you could play off. Um, just a word about the rushes. Because I came on the film really late, uh, I didn't read the script till I was on the plane flying to Munich. I got the script sort of the day before and read it on the, on the flight out. And then the next day, went into the theatre to view the rushes, and there were about at least two weeks of rushes to screen. Now, normally, you can take about an hour's rushes, and that's enough. You've, you've, you've taken it in, and that's enough. You, you don't want to see it a lot more because you need to absorb that. Uh, this one, I just kept yelling to the, the, the projectionist, next roll, next roll, next roll, watching this thing because I'd never seen cover like it. And I see I've worked in with good sense, directors. In what sense? The amount or the focus of the character? It was the fact that it was covered, but it wasn't, it wasn't the textbook cover. There oh, wasn't yeah. master shot and compromise. Now, I have also worked on films with Dick Lester, so I wasn't simply saying, ooh, dear me, he doesn't shoot this like Hitchcock or something. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that. I was used to... I mean, we were all in there with the French New Wave and so on. We knew about all this, but... Uh, even with the sort of guys who were thinking, like Peter Medak on his first film, they all wanted to be the young Turks who were coming in and you know, following in the new way's footsteps and so on. But nobody had done this. I was looking at these rushes. I hadn't seen anything like it. And I'd been you know, watching rushes for quite a few years. So the next day I went out for lunch with Yerchi. I spent the whole day just looking at the rushes, bring them on. I think, I, I think it was a day and a half I just spent watching the rushes. And the next day we went out and had lunch and, uh, on, the, on the day off shooting. And he said to me, what did you think of my cover? And I said, well, I thought it was fantastic. I said, you, there were about two close-ups that you missed. 
And it was such that I, I did know, as I was watch, watching the rushes, I could get a sense, yes, I've got a whole sequence there. No, wait a minute. For instance, the scene in which the, school, his, the boys who were still at school that he had left throw him in the water, um, there, there was a close-up of Jane Asher sitting on the, um, uh, sitting on the end of the diving board, sort of getting the sandwich, but he hadn't done a reverse close-up. So my only options in that case would be Jane Asher and then out to quite a wide shot with, you know. And I just knew that we needed something there. So I did pick up on, on those, the couple of close-ups he's missed. So I said, why, why do you ask? And he said, this is the first film that I've covered. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, see, in Poland... There's so little film stock that we have to shoot what is going to be in the film. So they have to plan it as though it's a... Well, in those days, I mean, we were talking about the late 60s. Mm -hmm. right? And so he said we have to plan it like, uh, as it were, like a live TV show where you have the script and you mark down which angles, which lines are going to be spelled, which piece of action will be done on. What I didn't know then was that he had shot, because this came up much later, he shot a film called Walkover uh, in Poland, which, if you can get hold of a copy, you should see it. In fact, I'm sure you can. Uh, it's 75 minutes long. It contains a boxing match, and it's done with 36 shots. He only did 36 shots for a 75-minute film. And we screened at the National Film School years after he told me this story. And I watched it. And you get lost in the film and you are not aware of the fact of how little editing there is in it. Because, again, there's a sense that he understood where the drama was. So he already had this. But before Deep End, he'd done a film called uh, The Adventures of Gerard. Right? He'd been brought over by the people who brought Polanski over think he would get another of these poles. But they'd given him a big epic set in the Napoleonic Wars. And he said it was a disaster because he said he had battle scenes to shoot. He had no idea. He needed to cover them, so he had set the camera. And it was a disastrous film. I mean, you'd never hear about the adventures of Gerard. Um, but this one, he, he got it. <laughs> so he had a combination of... The discipline of, of working out what, what, what he was pretty certain he'd need by having that film school and then in one or two of his films had very little stock. But also what you could do with moving, with moving camera in order to um, not simply get a record of a theatre piece but for it to be cinematic. Mm -hmm. okay. So... That's, that's talking about the cover. Yes. Okay, w one thing that, I, and I don't want to ask too many questions because I'm sure people will ask you some uh, in, very interesting ones and very important ones. But I'm fascinated by the overall pace of the film mm -hmm. because you have this kind of, this very less, uh, uh, leisurely moving beginning mm -hmm. and it starts to move into kind of inevit inevitability of his... Mm -hmm. Um, obsession to end up in that um, um, the, the swimming pool and, and the, 
there is a very seamless um, um, transition between the pool being empty to mm, half full mm-hmm. when the accident happened. Mm-hmm. When you are editing the film uh, and all the scenes put together, do you have a an internal measure of the actual of the rhythm, the film, or how how do you discover? Uh, right, I, I remind you of what uh, a colleague of mine um, uh, said once about this, about editing, and people saying we need to pace the film up. And he said, he said the energy is always in the shot. You can't put energy into something that, by editing, if it hasn't got it. And people talk about pacing a film up. All right, that means you shorten it. Well, actually, what can happen if you tighten a film up, for instance, is it seems slower. I mean, there's this this peculiarity, because Mm. it is, you know, it's an Mm. artifice. Uh, simply having everything go quickly doesn't mean that the audience is going to experience it having pace. Mm-hmm. Um, so pacing depends on primarily sensing the pulse of the shot and how long to hold it and where to get out. So that you it, see, I, I think of everything as like phrasing in music that you go to the end of the phrase and then you go on to the next phrase. So if a singer has to take a breath, right, the breath doesn't interrupt the flow, although any singer or woodwind or brass player has got to breathe. But are you aware of that? Mm-hmm. No, you're not, because they breathe at the end of the phrase. So you're looking for the phrase and finding the point where, when you go to the next shot, the rhythm pulse of the shot will continue now um, looking at it I, I realise it, it is cut tight but the reason for that is that the um, it, it's a very that the shots are very energetic so when you were looking for the point to come into a scene it was sort of quite obvious the scene you know you run the rushes and say there that's where we take off and you were in you know. but you didn't want to push it and then there were other things about how you end the scenes uh, so several of the scenes, one of the reasons I think that you sense that the beginning of the film was more easy going than the end was that quite a few of the scenes were designed to have uh, now in musical terms we were taught this, not sure whether this is um, actually very PC, but in music we talk about masculine endings and feminine endings, meaning the masculine ending is dum and the feminine ending is ah, like that, it's much more gentle. So, Now, for instance, the end of the Diana Dawes scene is really gentle, because he exits, and I noticed, I was watching Iris, I remember this, because she goes, ah, ah, you think like that, and you're watching the breast, and she took it down. It was she timed that cut, mm-hmm. but of course the shooting I mean, and the performance. I mean, the director, you know, she gave that performance, and the director kept the camera rolling in order to get that. So quite a few of the scenes at the beginning of the film, or up until halfway. Uh, you didn't want to get out of them hard 
and move on to the next scene. Um, and even towards the end, for instance, that one of my favourite scenes, uh, which is the one where Jane Asher is eating an ice cream. Oh, yes, by the cashiers. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then you have the gag with the scent being put in. And then another one, which really, that was the joke, of course. Then Jane Asher puts it down and walks off, and you take her all the way off and round the corner. Also, fortunately, showing the guy with the red paint. Because it's a beautiful mise-en-scene in there. With exactly. The and, that was, and that was introducing the idea, because red runs through the film way, mm-hmm. but it introduced the idea of the painting, painting the baths. So that meant that was why there was red paint on the trestle mm-hmm. uh, by the pool, which falls into the pool. Right. I wanted to ask you just one last question, mm-hmm. and it would be my last question. Um, because you mentioned the film is tight, feels tightly mm-hmm. cut. Now, with the way that uh, we now work um, uh, non-linearly and uh, the cutting tends to be quite fast in, at times, um, what have you brought in from your analog days to working in non-linear uh, in terms of how you look at the rushes, how you pace the film and how you actually allow yourself to explore the, the energy of the shot that you were talking about? I mean, no difference at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I cut the film for its dramatic, uh, the dramatic import. I, I just tell you that I, I showed a film, a National Film School film, uh, a few years ago to the head of camera from the Swedish Dramatic Institute. And... Um, at the end of it, I had no idea how, what his, you know, what he thought of it. So I said, oh, what do you think of it? And he said, it's amazing. And he said, the camera work was so logical. I said, what do you mean, logical? And he said, there's no such thing as a beautiful shot. He said, there's only a shot that is appropriate for the drama. And he said, in this film, every shot, the composition of the shot, the lighting, and any camera movement was appropriate to the drama, which, of course, since he was looking at a finished film, was equally to do with the editing. He was one of my best editing students there doing it also. And it was true. She had the material, and she had chosen the appropriate shot for this. Now, it doesn't matter what it's shot on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been working digitally since '92. Well, I was work- yes. talking more about the the means of editing because you know and now people jump from one place to another in the timeline and the rushes. You were talking before about going through the rushes and viewing everything, taking everything in. Yeah. So, I, it, my question was about what helped you from your analog days. In well, terms I don't. Of- I don't treat it because you can use digital stuff like monkeys on the typewriter hoping to come out at the end with the complete works of Shakespeare, Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't work. Um, We could also be talking about an aesthetic shift, which, funnily enough, I met somebody for coffee this afternoon, and we were talking about the shift, we were talking about, for instance, Paul Greengrass's films. And I said, I can't stand them. 
So I can't stand green grass. And he was agreeing and talking Born about Born ultimatum, uh, 90, uh, flight 93, something? Yeah, yeah. but I'm talking particularly because you know, there's a certain rivalry here. I cut Sunday, and, and, and his film was Bloody Sunday, so I cut the... I cut the Channel 4 version and he did the BBC one. Oh uh, he directed Charles uh, Charles McDougall did the... Uh, so on. And I, I, I couldn't watch it. I mean, obviously, this was the opposition, so I had to look at that. And this bouncing about like a flea in the frying pan is, for me, it's, it's not storytelling, it's not drama. I do not go... To, I go to the cinema to see actors deliver to me what is in the script. And the director and the editor, the cameraman, the art director are all servants to delivering a story. Now, as soon as you start, and from a point of view, not only not only the director's point of view or whatever, but you take a character and any scene will have a point of view which could shift within the scene. But this is what we're dealing with. Okay. Now, as soon as you start breaking things up and doing what is now called mosaic editing, which is ping, 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 um, you destroy that sense of having a coherent world. And at random, you shift the point of view. Now, there is something about the cut, which, uh, you see, a cut, uh, edits don't happen in the real world, in the actual world. It's completely artificial. There is no equivalent in the actual world of an edit. Okay? Mm-hmm. And people say to me, oh, yes, there is. Like, look at him, and then I go like that. So it's a cut. No, it isn't. It's a whip pan. <laughs> it's a whip pan. I know, because however brief it is, it's like that. Now, there's no time in, in an edit. The time between one shot and another is exactly the same as the time between one frame and another. So there's no whip pan there. And without going on too much about it, uh, all right, I'll tell you what happened. I discovered this when, as an editor, I was laying out music. And um, so I have a piece of music which was due to start on, uh, on the beginning of a shot. Right, let's say, this is a story I always tell the students I, you know, I teach. Guy's coming back from war. He's been away for two years fighting. He's coming back to his little cottage with his wife, his, the baby he left will now be two years old and so on. So he's toiling up the hill. Okay? And we're on him. And we come up with him as he comes up. And then he sees, he, we see that him see the beautiful valley with the thing. So we cut round to that shot. Beautiful panorama. There's his wife down there by the cottage gate baby and so on, the sun is shining, it's all beautiful. So we say, okay, he comes up, there is what he sees, a soldier's last return home and safe, okay? So that's where we're going to bring the music in, on the cut to the, um, to, to, to the, the panorama. Okay? And it's a beautiful cut, though I say so myself. It's not one I did do, but let's say it's a beautiful cut, Exactly the right time with the expression. You cut rounds just when you want to see it. Okay, so you get the music and you lay it up and you put the first modulation of the music on the cut. I run it through my machine and the cut popped. So I say, shit, what's that about? Okay, what can I do? It's got to be the music. 
So, you know, the only thing you do, unlock the, unlock the axle, the joint on the movie over, spin it back a frame, run again. Yeah, it's still popping. So let's try another frame. And then another frame. So you're now starting three frames after the cut. There are three frames of picture with no music on. The, the modulation starting on the fourth, the cut to the fourth frame. Okay. Lock it and run it. Beautiful. It cuts back. And where do you think the music looks as though it's starting? On the cut. It looks as though it's on the cut. And it isn't. I know very well there's an eighth of a second after the cut with no music on it. So why don't we register that? Uh, well, so again, working in the film, the film school is very useful because uh, I had a new group of students in, taught them about this, and I said, I think that there must be, when you present the audience with a new shot, there's, there's surge of brain activity. I said, I think it is sort of a hangover from the time when uh, you, could, you will always be presented by a threat with a new information. You know, you're a Stone Age man, you walk around the corner, wow, is it a bear or is it Og in his, in his fur coat? You know, uh, if it's a bear, you run like hell, but there's that moment when you say, what is it? Okay. And you have to adjust to the new visual information. And one of the students who just graduated from Manchester University in psychology said, amazing, we have been doing experiments with showing an image and then another image and then another image, and people are wired up, and we measured the brain waves. And they said, depending upon the complexity of the shot, there was a burst of brain activity between a twelfth to an eighth of a second, two to three frames. Mm -hmm. So you think, right, so there's got to be something in it. So every time you cut, you, dis you fractionally disturb the audience's total involvement in the film. Well, I said to them, there's a violent act that one commits with them when you, when, when you cut something with the, with the audience. Yeah. It, you are committing an action of violence by... Absolutely. And, it, and, it, and, 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 it, and it's also it's punctuation, of course. So you of put course. it in, it is like a common or whatever. Okay, so if you have lots and lots of cuts going like this, what you're doing is the equivalent of strobe lights in a disco. You know, after, after a while, the brain is saying, yeah, oh, man, oh. Okay, it's all going. And you can kind of follow the story, because you can see it, and you can kind of fit it together, but you're not involved in it. So um, if indeed electronic editing is to blame for, um, uh, for this kind of editing, then damn it. <laughs> no, it's, it bears a heavy burden. And it's interesting because, again, this guy I was talking to at lunchtime said that he heard Spielberg talking about making Indiana Jones. And he said, he said, we've got a problem now. He said, because he went back to look at the original Indiana Joneses to make sure that he could sort of get the same feel. And he said, apparently, he said, this is the report, that he said, when we made those films, it was to do with geography, and now it's to do with editing. Now, I would actually challenge that and say, yes, he's right about geography in that the dramatic space is, is a hugely important part of getting a drama across. 
you know, um, as you can see in this film, yeah. whether it's, you know, when you're in close-up, you know, you're seeing the, 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 the expressions on the face, but look at all those shots wide of the pool with the figures at the end or whatever. That actually creates that, you know, the sense of these small figures and the faith around them and so on. So for geography, I would replace dramatic space. And for editing now, I'd say, quite honestly, pissing about, you know. Uh, there's no point. Anybody could do it. This is the trouble. As long as you're not interested in saying, whose scene is it? What are they doing? And the audience saying, what happens next? Why? And so on. That's, you have to engage the audience, not bombard them and say, look, I, I clever. Look what I can do. Look, mum, no hands. You know, who cares? And then you end up with, look, mum, no teeth. Yeah, look, mum, no teeth. Okay, I think it's okay. a great opportunity to, to open up to the, to the audience. Uh, some very interesting aesthetic points and some uh, practical points about the editing. Any, any questions? Uh, yeah, please. Yes. I just uh, want to follow the last uh, comments. Uh, it, it, this is 40 years old uh, work of yours. Yeah. Is, is, is the cutting today would be different because the audience are different? No, the audience is the same. I mean, obviously, what you have now is you do have kids who spend all their time playing video games. So when they go to the cinema, they're perfectly happy to see the, the, the equivalent of video game. But the video game isn't drama, it's a video game. Um, there are genre. Now, I, mean, I, I did see The Last Born. What was it? The Born Ultimatum. And... Yeah, all right. And when you've got all these stunts, and obviously you've got to mix in stunt doubles and so on, you can see what they're doing, but you know it's all smoke and mirrors. Um, I remember getting really, really pissed off with Gladiator because in all those fight scenes, you could see that when that the, the hero was supposed to get close to the tiger or the leopard or whatever it was. You cut to a close-up on a whip pan and there'd be a boom and so on. And you thought, he was nowhere near. He was nowhere near. You know, come on. Nobody at his risk. You go back to the old Robin Hood films or whatever with Douglas Fairbanks or whatever. And they really did swing about and so on. You look and said, shit. You couldn't do it. It's like the editing in Chicago. All tight cuts in a musical, playing a musical in close-up. Why? Because most of the actors couldn't dance, so they had to shoot it in close-up. You look at it and you say, you're doing it because you're lazy, because you can't do any better. You can't work out. So I feel cheated, and even... I mean, I, I have to admit, I haven't cut a film in the last six years now. But the last film I cut, um, cut like this. Insofar as I cut according to what the film demanded, I don't have a style. What, what, or, and it reminds me of um, the Coen brothers. The Coen brothers were accused recently of, with uh, True Grit, of not having their trademark on it, their, you know, their voice. And they said, what are you talking about? They said, we try to do justice to the story. We don't try and piss on it. 
<laughs> you see what I mean? And that's it. So the Cohen brothers are... And actually, look at the Cohen brothers' film. There's nothing fancy about that. There are a hell of a lot of good films out now which do not do all the jazzy stuff. Um, and, you know, they, they, they do all right. So it's not as though audiences change. I get, actually, I get very worked up when I hear people say, ah, audiences can't do this, and you think, you know, they can't attend to a shot that runs fourth and three seconds. And you think, you've never spoken to a member of the audience in your life. All you've done is gossip with people in the BBC canteen, thinking that you're God Almighty, and you don't come out and meet us. What you're looking at, you always look at in terms of your career. You never switch off and say, OK, what, what is it that gets an audience? Why do people... I mean, that is a big question. Why come along and see people pretending to be somebody else doing something that never happened? Why do we do it? We don't do it to see directors or editors or people being clever clogs. So... Um, no, I wouldn't change, and I'd purposely work with directors who think the same as me. Okay. Any other questions? I think you made a point about the storytelling being paramount. Yes? Um, there seems to be um, some scenes that were improvised. Is that true? Or were, were they all tightly scripted or not? So they had a feel of something that had been improvised, fresh, actually. Yeah. Yes. Um, and one, one in particular... I'd say, although it was script, actually I've got a copy of the script, I should check. Uh, if there was, I mean, the, 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 they were all scripted, all right? But what Skolomowski allowed, uh, particularly John Mulder, Brown and Jane, to do was, when they got into it, to, to improvise a bit. So the pregnant man scene, uh, it's scripted. But I'll swear that there are bits in there. Uh, for instance, um, quite simply, is this improvising or, or is, it, uh, is it just giving a proper performance? When she's tearing the thing out, she says, you know, she really think I'll be arrested for defacing public property. You know, and so on. He's there. Defacing. Defacing. So on. Now, you... You almost miss it. And in a way, she picked up on the way she delivered the line. It was almost thrown away too much. So she repeated it, and she was reacting to him sitting there going like this. And they were in it. So to that extent, there is there's a measure in which the performances were... Imp- and certainly there were things that happened accidentally, like breaking the... Uh, breaking the light in the tube train <laughs> that wasn't scripted I mean that just happened then they, then they reacted to it you know, or didn't react because that was the big thing he asked all the extras in the tube um, to behave as they would do in reality if something happened if there was a scene so they all sat there and went, they went like this and went back to the newspapers he say yep yep absolutely right so, so you reckon is the characters taking over the scene, as it were, I mean, if, if, if Ashes... Yes, yes, but it wasn't that, that he sort of said, oh, do what you like. I mean, the, the, there was the bedrock there. 
Um, and you know, quite honestly, I would have to go through with, well, anybody could go with a copy of the script and view it and see just whether anything uh, had been developed. But I think of it more as developing rather than improvising the whole thing. It is very fresh, I agree, which is very much to do with, you know, it's to do with the actors. Um, I mean, the director let them off to do it, but uh, it is very much to do with them. They were brilliant. And it's a gift, you see, getting performances <laughs> like that. But also your point about directors allowing them to, yes. to, yes. to run with the character. Uh, any, any more questions? Um, I wanted to ask what socket was shot on and also what you think about the way the restoration looks as opposed to the print. Well, as, as far as I can tell, I mean, the rest of it looks wonderful. Now, what I can't be absolutely certain about is whether they have got the, the aspect ratio of the original film. This is 185, no? Well, I think it's 185, although... It, could have been the there was was it one six five, and quite often what happened was that one six five, which is not quite as wide, it's slightly higher, it's still a wide screen, but there's there's more. There's, there's more depth to it, and that was partly with films that were expecting to be subtitled. So what I do is give oh, a bit I'm more sorry. space at the bottom for subtitle films. Now there, there's something. I mean I've. I told Jaime that this Blu-ray DVD, um, whichever you can run, uh, is coming out <laughs> next month. And there is uh, there's an additional feature on it, which is a documentary made by Robert Fisher, where he's interviewed um, quite a lot of us. Uh, and I got a feeling that he may actually deal with this, possibly with with the cameraman, about what aspect ratio it was supposed to be. I had a feeling once or twice that it was, it was cut off. It, it was, if it was 185, it should have been 165. I had about 40 years is a, is a long time. Uh, I mean, I saw the film when it first came out in 71. I've screened it a couple of times with prints from the BFI, but last time I saw it was that way it was probably 20 years ago. And I've seen it off a old VHS and so on, um, which doesn't do it justice. So uh, I can't tell you, but certainly the restoration in terms of colour and the, the, the picture quality is amazing. It is absolutely amazing. I mean, the opening titles, I guess I've never seen them as clear as, as that, except when I saw the pristine print the first time it was screened at the Academy Cinema over here. Um, yes, it is a fantastic restoration. Mm -hmm. I think you talk, touch upon the, the idea of planning ahead if a film is to be subtitled to allow you to yeah. avoid having to fight titles on people's faces and so on. Or covering some piece of action with the hands or whatever, the hands are sort of doing something Absolutely. right, and then you cover it with a subtitle, so it can get confusing. I wonder, I, what I'd like to do, this might, might help, just to mention uh, one thing that happened in terms of the difference between the script and the film. Uh, I told you I came on the film very late, so they only had about a week's shooting, week, week and a half, maybe ten days shooting left to do. 
uh, including the Diana Dorr scene. So, and so I'm back in, back in Germany because I flew out to Munich after they shot in London. And so Skolomowski asked me to make what, what I never do normally would be an assembly of as much of the film as I could in about four days, four or five days max, uh, before he finished shooting. Now, I was able to do this because quite a lot of the scenes, fortunately, he had covered with one of his tripod shots. So although I had closer cover, I say, okay, you know, this scene is covered, you know, not adequately, dramatically, but we can get the idea of what goes on in it. And there were some scenes I, I actually had to cut because there was, there was no master shot. So it, it actually had to be, had to be edited. Um, and possibly, I'm not even sure whether I had the rushes of Diana Dorr scene by then, possibly not. So there might have been some bits, the odd scene in the first hour of the film, up until Soho, that I didn't get pulled together. Uh, so I remember after I'd been there about a week maximum, um, we screened what I got done the first hour of the film. And Skolomowski, at the end of it, was horrified because he found there were two scenes that were in the wrong place. The fire alarm scene happened where the pregnant man sequence is now, and the pregnant man sequence was where the fire alarm scene is. And Skolomowski said, they've got the development all wrong. He said, by the time the fire alarm, we have to be much further down. The, 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 the pregnant man scene, they're getting to know one another. Mm-hmm. By the fire alarm, of course, you know, uh, Mike is disillusioned. So he said, can, so can we switch them? And he looked at them and said, I said, well, yeah, we we can switch them, and they work all right if they were literally transposed one to the other. I said, there's only one problem, then, that if you move the fire alarm scene up, where's the pregnant man poster gone to? Because yeah, it very clearly put up on that wall, and then it's not on there. So he said, right, I can reshoot it. I said, yeah, and what he can do is he can pull the poster down. So he said, okay, I'll reshoot it. How much do I have to reshoot? Where could you get across to the original scene? And so I said, well, it's when Mike jumps on the weighing machine, jumps up and down, and then runs back and smashes the fire alarm. If he's already torn the thing off, you can go back to the original. And that's what we did. So that one developing shot where he comes out tears it down, walks along, and then jumps. That was, that was shot much later because the scene had been transposed, so that was up. So that was the kind of contribution you, one got from the feedback that the script might have not, not have got it right and until you got the whole, you know, enough of it together. And that was in time before the shooting wrapped. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fortunately, he had a, you know, a day or two, day or two left, and he was able to set that up. Yeah. Any other questions? 
that you want to add any particular thing? Because I, I think what, what has new technology given you as an editor, if no aesthetics? All right, no, no aesthetic. What it amounts to is this. Um, you can do a recut without the penalty that if the recut doesn't work, you can go back to the earlier version. It's saved. Whereas if you do the recut, and, uh, and maybe several recuts, and everybody says, oh, no, 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 it's much better than your first cut. You say, oh, shit. You've got to take the whole thing to pieces and stick it all together again and work out where your cuts were. And then, unless you get reprints of it, which is expensive, and there's always a risk of damaging the negative if you reprint it and so on, you've got um, sellotape joins all the way through, where you've had to build it up. The advantage of the film first edit is that you have to think about it precisely because if you, if you get it wrong and you have to recut it yourself, you've got that telltale sellotape thing that says, ah, you thought the cut should be there, you thought you should go to that shop, but you were wrong, weren't you? So what you do is you think very clearly before you edit about what is the scene about, whose point of view it is, what's the function of the scene, where are the, where are the key moments in it, where are the turning points, which shots belong together, where, where does everything shift. So you get all that planned out and actually produce a, a paper cut, or if you don't need a paper cut, I again tell students that what I used to do was to get my rolls of film, each shot, I'd lay them out on the, the, the desktop, the cutting bench, and go, so I'm going to go from this to this to this to this to this, and I'd be going through my head saying, is this the right progression? The scene would be marked up, I'd get the right progression, even if at the last moment I'm actually assembling it on the synchronizer, I'm still thinking, okay, we go this, it's not a mechanical process, I might stop saying, no, wait a minute, it's not right, so I'd stop there, and have them another check. It's the thinking time before, and it's getting to know your material. And I was talking to... Um, damn it, I always forget his surname. His first name is Tony. He cuts for... Ah, doesn't Tony matter. Lawson? Tony Lawson? Tony Lawson, exactly. It's Tony Lawson. Nicholas and Rogue, he cut for Nicholas Rogue. That's right, yeah. cut for Nick Rogue. Uh, and he was cutting Butcher Boy. Yeah, Twickenham when I was I was cutting another film out there and I told him about because I, I cut on if I do digital work I cut on a system called Lightworks oh. I don't like Avid or Final Cut Pro it's too computery and Lightworks is for film editors you don't have to understand how a computer works because Lightworks presents you the material as though it were on film and you, know, you can use the bells and whistles if you like, but you don't have to tell the story. So I said to him, what... So he was cutting Butcher Boy on, on the um, on Lightworks. I said, well, how are you getting on with it? Because I was very keen on it in those days. Uh, and he said, well, it's fine, except I don't know the material as well as if I cut it, done my first cut on film. He said, what I'd like to do is to do my first cut on film and then put that cut 
in, and all the material into a digital machine and do all the recutting on um, uh, di digitally because obviously you can make changes much faster. However, there's a warning about this digital technology. It has, in fact, uh, drastically reduced the status of the editor. Everybody now thinks they can cut because they've got the software. Anybody can load Final Cut Pro in their laptop. I've got it in my new laptop, you know. You can put it in. You're an editor, aren't you? Look, you can stick the shots together. You're an editor. No, you're not. <laughs> no. You're not any more than somebody who's got, you know, one of those keyboards where you, 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 know, you press the thing and it, it will start playing a bass. You're not a pianist, you know. Uh, you're not. It's got nothing at all to do with the machine. But people think that they now can edit. And because it's so easy, because they don't have the mystique, in the old days on film, what would happen is somebody would make a suggestion. Right, I think you should do this, this, and this. Okay. And then what would happen is you say, okay, so you go off to the cutting room, and you've made the changes, and you might well say, wait a minute, what were they worried about? This is what happens, you see. When somebody looks at some from outside, not the director and the editor, but somebody from outside looks at a cut, and there's something that they're not happy with. Well, you should listen to them, because they're not happy with it, they're a member of the audience, and you haven't quite delivered. But what I tend to do is to think that they can't just say, look, there's a problem there, I don't know what it is. You're, you know the material, there's a problem there, all I can say is I'm thrown out of the film as something, could you fix it? No, what they usually do is say, no, I'm, a, I'm the producer, or I'm something like that. So, no, you've got to go to close-up there, or you don't need those lines, or you can do this. And you're expected to go away and do what they say. Now, if, in fact, you can work out what the problem is and fix it and then come back and show them the film, even if you haven't done what they asked you to because you've solved the problem, they say, that's fine. I had a really big example on, um, on a film called uh, Get Real where uh, it started off as a comedy, it was a comedy drama. So we had the comedy at the beginning and then suddenly it became a drama because we suddenly realised our hero, this young schoolboy, was gay and he was cottaging. He was off looking to pick up men at the toilet in the local park, right? So, boom. Okay. And we screened the film for the finance people and they said, you've got to get rid of that cottaging scene. You know, it's really, it's all, it's all wrong, so on, and... You can't have it. If you keep on with the, the, the scenes in the school because they're funny. It's ridiculous. The whole film is actually about this gay schoolboy. And you can't get rid of it. You think, why on earth? I mean, it's idiotic. They read the script. They know da 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 da. And the next day, I, we were, the director and I were due to see the composer. And I'm driving out, I suddenly thought, I know what it is. Because the music, the temp track we had put on the front of the film... This is a provisional track. A provisional before. track. This was some music that the director found, and it was a piece of Los Angeles garage band with this group who were very funny because they sang out of tune. 
and so on. And it was really funny, and it was all sort of, you know, like this and so on. So I suddenly said, God, you know what it is? The music we put on the front of the film says that this is Animal House 16. It's setting this up as just a raunchy, funny comedy, a college movie. And it isn't. We've set it up wrong. So we asked the composer to do an opening of what he would put on our front titles. And the next time we ran it, we had this on. And the cottage scene was... Well, we had adjusted it. We we'd had sweetened it a little bit and taken out some of the, you know, the, the, the really hard stuff. But we sweetened it up. And it went through, and he said, fine. And no, not a murmur about getting rid of the scene. Because we found the problem, which had nothing at all to do with getting rid of that scene. Now you can't do that. And... I, no, I better not mention the film, but there was a film. I was on the BAFTA editing committee one year, and there was one film came up. It's the last film that I screened. I screened it on the morning before we met in the afternoon. So I was at BAFTA, screened this. I was hoping, because I didn't think much of the other films, and this one came up. I think, oh, this is really good. I thought, I was Paul, it was one of the worst edited films I'd ever seen. Up for a BAFTA for editing. Huh? So I went into the committee room with steam coming out of my ears. I said, you know, this is, I, do, I have no idea why this is. It's really badly edited. It's shocking. So. And there was another editor there, Jim Clark, who said, ah, he said, I've got a background on this I was tell you about. So I said, oh, yeah. He said, Right, he said, with that film, he said, first of all, the editor did a cut, Peter Boyle. Then the director did a cut. Then the writer did a cut. Then the producer did a cut. Then the executive producers did their cuts. And then Miramax came in and did their cuts. He said, I was called in as a sort of, you know, post-production doctor they wanted to, they actually wanted to get rid of it it's the usual thing now what happens if anything goes wrong in the film he sacked the editor it's got to be his fault the editor will always get thrown off a film now for you know because that's going to solve all the problems so but Jim Clark wasn't going to get involved in that one so he went back after a meeting there was one scene in particular they were concerned about and said to Peter Boyle uh, right let's have a look at the scene have you got any other versions of it and he said I've got I've got 35 versions of the whole scene, the 16 of part of it. What would you like to see? <laughs> eh. And in the end, I asked, I went to a dinner party a few months later, and the usual question, you're on there, what do you do? Does it make any difference to the film? So I said, have you seen this film? And they said, yeah. So I said, did you get involved in it? I said, well, no. Funny enough, they said there was something that, kept us out of it the editing because they weren't with the, the, it was never on the appropriate shot never it was, it was fantastic I mean I will use this now as an example of no editing how not to edit That's how you will assess a bad edit that you're on the wrong you're on, you're on, the, you're on the wrong no. you're on the wrong shot it's not telling you there's no there's, there's no dramatic point of view. You don't know whose scene it is because... And it wasn't mosaic editing. It was just random. And you kept on cutting this and that. And you thought, yeah, but I don't know. Where's it going? 
And there was never anything where you were seated and the, and the structure of the scene took you through and delivered not only the obvious story, what was going on, but also what it was really about, what the function of the scene was. You know, what part did it play in the whole film? Now, again, if you look at Deep End here, you'll see that all sorts of films, all sorts of scenes in which the final denouement is, is there. It's, it's, in, it's, it's rooted in those scenes. They're comedy scenes, but there is blood or there is standoffs between people or sex or whatever. And somehow or other, it's always there. It's clear where you're going. And so you know, the whole thing fits together because you, you know all the time what what stage you're at and where it's leading to. And this one, you didn't. Now, of but course... But nevertheless surprising. Because hmm? nevertheless it's surprising. Oh, <coughs> at what? the end... Oh, here, yes, yes. But when you get to the end, it's the usual thing. I mean, it's, it's I'll move back to Aristotle. You know, somebody said about... Um, I guess Friedrich Dürermatt said, every drama has to have a moment in it which is accidental but seems to be inevitable. He said, Oedipus meets Laius at the crossroads. It's an accident, but it's inevitable. And that, so here, the, 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 you know, the accident that he swings the lamp, which incidentally, um, the, on that particular lamp, the, um, the actual bit that hits it was made of rubber. <laughs> so so I mean, it, it, did, it did hit her, and then we put the door in. I mean, that's, that's pretty obvious. But... I mean, that is an accident, but then you go through the whole film, you see how, in the end, dramatically, it was, it was inevitable. Do you have any, just, just to close for the evening, mm -hmm. it, the, because you started as a sound editor, was, or is that too much of an assumption? Um, well, I did, I did start in, in sound, and, and of course sound is, I mean, I've, I'm... Uh, I'm absolutely, uh, you know, the, the importance of sound in, in any film is, is, is obvious. Um, I have to admit that I was, I was sound editor as such, in complete control, on only one film. All right? And what I realized was that I wasn't really cut out for it because a good sound editor is, is a different breed. And... So as soon as I started cutting, I always tried to get hold of you know, particular sound editors. And there was one in particular called Alan Bell. And the thing about Alan was that he had this huge library of sounds. He knew all the sounds that were... He knew everything that was in all the sound libraries. And he had this sense of the dramatic potential of a sound, you know, And so I, I, go into his, I go into his cutting room when he was track laying, and I see him sitting there, and he'd be smoking a roll-up, and he'd just run the thing, he'd be doing this, and you think, not doing very much, and he was thinking, what can I do with it? And you look at his dubbing charts, and there's very little on them. But every one of those effects <coughs> was dramatically absolutely to the point. And I remember there was one case in The Shout, another Skolomowski film. I don't know. Any of you know the film? 
Right, it, it is out on DVD. It's worth having a look at. Uh, the Shout. And it's... <coughs> somebody once said... That, I mean, when, when the film was finished, some of us had reservations about it. Somebody said, it's a bit like a Chinese meal. You thoroughly enjoy it while it's going, and then half an hour later you think, hmm, what was that all about? But it is actually a triumph. <laughs> it's a triumph of technique over... Rather thin material. I mean, everything. Everybody worked like crazy. The actors and everyone, and there are all sorts of. Uh, well, I'm puzzled by the <laughs> comparison with the Chinese meal, but putting uh, that okay. aside. Okay, but now get to get back to this. The sound. All right. So there's a scene in it towards the end where um, Susanna York is in is is in the state because uh, she. It seems as though she might have had an affair or fallen in love with. Uh, Alan Bates, not surprising, and but he's left suddenly, and her husband is a composer. That's John Hurt, and he's working away, and she's in the kitchen, um, uh, grating, uh, you know, grating carrots. And what had to be set up was that something is going to happen here. So when we were having the first run of the soundtracks, uh, and of course the sound mix I hadn't found any levels or whatever an effect came up and Skolomowski said I'll get rid of the dog you see and I said hang on a minute let let, let Mac find the right level for it because I'd I'd looked at what was on the dubbing chart and so when that sound was held down it wasn't a dog it was a vixen now probably quite a few of you now with foxes around here have heard vixens barking and they are eerie they do not sound like a dog except when it's very close it made hair stand up on the back of your head now that was a real sound editor now I will come clean no, I, 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 I couldn't that. do it but of course when I, I use yeah. that because um, or I made the assumption hmm. because of that um, the sound editing prior to the accident in the swimming pool. There is a very, there is an overlapping and echoing the sounds of the voices calling each other. So there is a kind of very particular design of the sound. Yeah. At, at that point. That's interesting. Now that was a technique. See, this is way before the, there were all the fancy things that you can do now with, with digital sound so on uh, I'd either done it myself once because I, I, I was I, I was uh, I was sounded I was the footsteps editor the foley editor on a high wind in Jamaica so I you know and I've done dialogue dialogue editing and so on as well but I remembered that you could produce an echo effect not simply by going as we had to then through an echo chamber so you produce an echo. But if you took sound and you, you transferred two or three versions and then laid them up out of sync and then put a bit of echo on them and played each, each track quieter, you could get an echo sound. So it's, so it's uh, you know, Susan, 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 like that. Well, that would be three or four mm-hmm. soundtracks all laid up. So when we reached that point, I said to Rusty Copperman, my sound editor look we, we, we really need we could do, use this effect here 
So that was that was laid up specifically. Because it only happens there. Only just it only happens there. Yeah, I mean, very... you, you you save that trick um, because it's so effective there. And if we use it anywhere else, everybody yeah. says, "Oh, we've heard that." Yes, yeah, it's the beginning yeah. of a terrible yes. nightmare. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Good. So, yes, indeed. Okay. Good. Well, thank you very much for coming, Barry, and uh, thank you. All for This podcast was brought to you by the London Film School, a skill set partner.